Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 5. Let us give careful attention to the public reading of God's word. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them, May fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. Just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten that word in our hearts and in our lives, that we together with all of your people might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us and that we might honor you more along the journey. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is uh, part three of a five-part series extended over a period of time that I'm not quite sure of. Uh, We have taken two Sunday mornings to look at what I call the command before the command. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? In the Gospel of Mark, he didn't say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Immediately, the first thing he said is, hear, O Israel. In other words, there's a command before the command. God commands us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. But before he commands us to love him, he commands us to do something else, and that is to listen to him. Hear. Listen. And when he gets our attention, as we'll recall, the first thing he says is our name. He says, Israel, he says, you used to be Jacob, you used to be cheater, you used to be deceiver, but I've transformed you and you are now Israel here. O Israel, you are those who, to be sure, you have to wrestle. Our relationship with God is not always easy. We have to wrestle like Jacob. We have to struggle. But we're those who have wrestled with God and have overcome. We're prevailers. We are more than conquerors, as the Apostle Paul tells us, because of the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And after he tells us our name, he tells us his name. He says, Lord, he's the God who is ever so close to us. He's the God who is with us. He says, our God, he's the transcendent one, the one who is far beyond anything that we could think or imagine. The God who is so far beyond us that we can't even conceive of him is the one who is also at the same time very close to him. And that happens in particular in the person of his son. When Jesus, who is the eternal God, second person in the Trinity, takes on human flesh, the the transcendent God wants so much to be with us that he actually became one of us for all eternity. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And his being one uh, includes the idea that he wants to have an exclusive relationship, which is why the book of Deuteronomy says repeatedly, no other gods, no other gods, no other gods. Uh, he wants to have that exclusive relationship. And his being one means that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In colloquial terms, you can go to the bank with God. He's faithful, ever faithful. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness not only in redemptive history by bringing Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land and back from the captivity and in sending his son, but he's demonstrated his faithfulness in our own histories. Uh, we could take the rest of the afternoon, each of us just sharing for five or ten minutes, a few of the stories uh, in demonstration of the ways in which God has been faithful to us personally. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The command before the command. Well, this morning we're looking at the command itself, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And as in the previous sermons, we're just going to keep this simple and just walk our way right through the language of the text. And uh, the text starts by saying, love the Lord your God. And so my first point this morning is, love the Lord your God. Now, we've already talked about that phrase, uh, the Lord your God, from verse 4. And so we're just going to look at that word love. And, you know, being a good Presbyterian, I want to tell you three things uh, about love. What, what, what's involved when God says, love the Lord your God? And the first thing is that love is covenantal. Love is covenantal. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say love is covenantal, I simply mean that our love for God is our response to God's love for us. When I say that love is covenantal, I simply am repeating what the Apostle John says in 1 John when he says, we love God because he first loved us. Now, how do I get that? Uh, has anybody ever purchased an automobile? Oh, uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. Has anybody ever purchased more than one automobile in your lifetime? Has anybody ever purchased more than one house in your lifetime? Uh, you know, when, when you purchase an automobile or when you purchase a home, you enter into a contract. And um, I think purchasing a home has more lines for your signature than purchasing an automobile. But one thing about these contracts is they have a lot of places where you sign. And uh, I dare say that if we had the contract from the purchase of our first home and the contract from the purchase of a second home, and we looked at those contracts, while there might be some small differences, they're pretty much the same. We call them boilerplate. They follow a template. Covenants in the ancient world were like contracts. They followed a template. I just want to, I just want to call to mind a couple of dimensions of the template from the covenant contract in the ancient world. They typically started with a preamble, uh, and the preamble would identify the parties. Now, in the ancient world, there were a couple of kinds of contracts. There were contracts that were called parodies because the two kings were on 
They're on the same level. They're on par with each other. Hence, those are parity treaties, parity covenants. But there's another kind of covenant that we call a suzerain vassal covenant. Because here the kings aren't on par with each other. One is the great king and the other is the lesser king. One's in the superior position. One is in the subordinate position. And it's that kind of covenant that God uses as a model for his relationship with ancient Israel. And these covenants, when they were made, first thing you do is identify who the great king is. For example, I'll read from a, an ancient Hittite treaty. It says, these are the words of Mercilus, the great king, king of the Hittites, the valiant. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, 1 through 4, is the preamble. It's identifying the great king albeit indirectly through Moses. Notice how the book of Deuteronomy starts. These are the words Moses spoke. The, the ancient Hittite treaty starts, these are the words of Mercilus, the great king. Deuteronomy starts, these are the words which Moses spoke on behalf of whom? The great king, the God of Israel. So there's always in this contract a preamble which identifies the great king. Who is the great king? Who's the subordinate people? Then there's a prologue. And the prologue is a history section. But, um, you know, you know the no spin zone? I don't think it exists. There's always spin. It's just human nature. Uh, that's, it, that's not a value judgment. But even when the Bible tells history stories, it's doing so for a purpose. There's an agenda. There's a point that is being made. That's just the way history is. So the prologue would tell history, but it would tell the history in particular of how good the great king has always been to the subordinate people. Uh, and so, for example, in this Hittite treaty, uh, the great king says, when your father died, I did not drop you. Since your father mentioned you by name to me with great praise, I sought after you to be sure you were sick and ailing, but I still let you replace your father and accepted your brothers and sisters and your land in oath for you. In other words, I was the, the superior king and your father was the subordinate king. And when he died, I could have made anybody king I wanted to. And you weren't really fit for the job in some ways, but you know how good I am? I made you king anyhow. You see, it's history with a purpose, telling how good the great king has been. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 4, verse 29, we get a short history of Israel. And the point of that short history of Israel is how good God has been to Israel. And then we come to the third part of the treaty, the third section of the contract, and those we call the stipulations, the terms of the covenant, what you're supposed to, how long do you have to pay this loan back? When are the payments due? How much interest? How much principal? What happens if you default? We have all the stipulations or what we call the law and all of Deuteronomy 5 through 29 are all of the stipulations. Now, there's more to it, but that's all I want to say at this point. Covenants, contracts, treaties, they have parts. And who is the great king? Who are the subordinate people? How good the great king has always been. Now, here's how you are to respond. And now, why am I saying all of this with regard to love? Remember, love, the point is love is covenantal. 
Our love is a response to the love that God has for us. And the point simply is that, you know how I've said there's a command before the command? Well, there's a love before the love. God calls us in this text to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. But there is a love before that love that we must always be aware of. That's covenantal. The love of the subordinate people is always preceded by the love of the great king. That's not only true in the structure of the covenant, that's true in the structure of the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments, after all, are also covenantal. Uh, How do the Ten Commandments begin? We say there's a preamble. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's the love before the love. Now then the commandments go on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. There's our loving response to God. Even in the Ten Commandments there, we're called to love God because remember Jesus says that the the command to love God and to love neighbors summarizes all the commandments. All the commandments are our way of loving God. And so before we're called to love God by having no other gods before him, he tells us of his love for us. Um, Mike, I presume it was Mike, picked two wonderful hymns. Love divine. All loves excelling. As much as we ever love God, it will always be with a human, finite love. There's a love that excels our love for God. And it's the love that He has for us. It not only excels it, but it comes before it. We love because He first loved us. How deep the Father's love for us. Love is covenantal. When we think of the call to love God, when we think covenantally, Right in the front of our minds, when we think of the call to love God, we think, oh, this is my opportunity to love God because of how much he has loved me. Loved me so much that he sent his son to live a perfect life of righteousness in my place. To die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. To descend into hell to break the power of death over my life. To rise from the dead so that I can have a right relationship with Him. To sit at the Father's right hand right now praying for me and for you that we will make it home. To come in again in power and great glory to bring that new heaven and that new earth that every human heart so desperately longs for we love him because he loved us this call to love God is covenantal now we've already seen this indirectly love is not only covenantal love is also volitional great word Um, not a word that we use in the grocery store all that often when we're you know talking to somebody in the checkout line Uh, but somebody give me another word that the word volitional is related to Voluntary. If you do something voluntarily, you're doing it how? As an act of your own, it's your own will. Volition, will. To say that 
uh, we do something voluntarily is that we're not doing it under compulsion. Nobody's making us do it. We're doing it by an act of our own will. And in the same way, love is volitional. Love is an act of the will. See, in our culture, we think of love as an emotion. We'll come back to that point. We think of love as a feeling. But in the Bible, love is volitional. Love is an act of the will. Love keeps the commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, We could show numerous examples of this. Uh, Just a couple. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep His requirements, decrees, His laws, and His commandments always. The underlying Hebrew text could easily be translated this way. Love the Lord your God by keeping His requirements, decrees, His laws, and His commandments always. Always. Love is volitional. Love makes the choice to keep God's commandments rather than transgress those commandments. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. See, the more we study the Old Testament, the more that we realize that To a very large extent, Jesus wasn't a a theologian who delighted in new and creative teaching. Jesus was a theologian who just brought out what was right there in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. Uh, From a human point of view, remember Jesus was human. We tend to think of Jesus only as divine, but he was human. And like we are humans, we learn, we study, we grow. The Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom. Hard for us to understand how God could grow in wisdom, but we must remember that in a mysterious way, Jesus was fully human like we are. And so he grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and with people. And I think Deuteronomy was Jesus' favorite book. Why? Because he quotes it more than any other book in the Old Testament. And remember when he was tempted three times in the wilderness? What did he pull right out of his holster? He he pulled quotations. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And every time he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. And so when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, he's not coming up with a novel teaching. He's just bringing to the new covenant people what's embedded in the old covenant, what's embedded in the book of Deuteronomy, that love is volitional. Love keeps the commandments. I can't speak for women uh, because I'm not one, have never been one. Probably, I'm guessing, never will be one, at least not as I understand the way the world works. Um, wives, I'll bet there are times in, in your experience, uh, I mean, unless you have like the perfect husband, I'll bet there are times when you've heard your husband say, I've loved, I love you, and in the, in the back of your mind, if not off of your lips, you said, yeah, well, prove it. How many wives have heard their husbands say, I love you, but they've seen actions that are quite to the contrary? As I say, I I can't say whether it goes the other way or not. I only say the one way that I know it goes. You see, there's got to be a corresponding act of the will 
The words are wonderful. We don't want to play those words down. The words, I love you. And we want something to come along with them. We want action. Action that demonstrates that those words aren't empty. But that those words are really connected with profound, uh, life-changing, life-giving truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. It's covenantal. It's our response to the love that he has had for us. It's volitional. It has got to bring along with it that deep desire to keep his commandments, to walk in his ways. Now, the third point about love. I know that you've probably heard this or you've read it. Um, Love is not an emotion. Love is action. We've all read it. We've all heard it. Love is not an emotion. Love is action. Okay, I've just told you love is action. Yes, that ought to be clear. But now I want to undo that other first part. It's clear in the Bible that love is action. It is not at all clear that love is not an emotion. Okay, let's put it this way. Love is not only an emotion. Love is also action. But it's just not the case that love, our love for God, is not an emotion. That's my third point. Love is emotional. It's covenantal. It's volitional. It's emotional. The love that God calls us to is emotional. That's part of it being covenant. To say that it's covenantal is to say that it's emotional. Listen to the language of an Assyrian treaty. If you do not love the crown prince designate as you do your own lives. Sound familiar? You see, the the language of the Bible is the language of covenant. Love is is emotional. Another Assyrian treaty, you will love Ashurbanipal as you love yourselves. Love is covenantal. It, it's, it, it, it hasn't been much more than a hundred years since archaeologists unearthed all these ancient covenant documents so that we could understand these ancient treaties. And they, they've given us wonderful new insights into the Bible itself. One of the early scholars who was involved uh, in the study of these ancient covenants and what we could learn about the Bible from them said this, Love your Lord is not, however, even in treaties, simply a polite way of saying, obey or else. And when folks say love is not an emotion, love is action, What they're saying is you can just substitute the word obey for the word love. What does love mean? Love means obey. Well, certainly love brings obedience with it, but it's more than obedience. And that's what, as Hillers was was studying these ancient treaties, he says, love your Lord covenantally is not just a polite way of saying obey. It is not merely a synonym for obedience. The ancient kings at least made an effort to put their relations to vassals on some other level than that of naked power and forced obedience. 
love your Lord, much like the rest of the covenantal terminology, words like brother, father, whole heart, expresses a desire to affect sincere affection and heartfelt loyalty. Sincere affection and heartfelt loyalty as bonds of peace. To say then that love the Lord your God is ultimately covenantal language is not to take it out of the realm of emotion, but only to say that the covenantal concept shapes the emotional term. And you see, that's why, that's why we have to see that, that love is our response, and that's why it's important to see that the prologue, remember the history, comes before the stipulations, before God says, here's what I want you to do, he first says, here's how I have loved you. Here's how I've been so good to you. Why did all of these ancient kings tell all of these subordinate people how good he has always been? Why didn't he just say, obey me? It's because while he wanted their obedience, he didn't want naked obedience. He wanted obedience that comes out of a grateful heart. So he tells them how good he has been before he tells them what to do so that when they do what they're supposed to do, they're doing it because they're grateful for how good he has been. That's covenant. And that's what's going on here. That the, the love that we're called to, the text does not say, and it could, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Obey the Lord your God. It could use any of the words for obedience, but it doesn't. It uses an affective term. It uses an emotional term. It uses the language of love. First uh, Kings 3.26. Let's just take a look at two brief texts that use this same word, love, just to show some of the ways in which it's used in the Old Testament. First Kings 3.26. This is when Solomon has that problem of the two mothers and one of the babies unfortunately and tragically died in the middle of the night. And Solomon's trying to figure out which one is the mother of the living child and which one is the mother of the child that has passed away. Then it says in verse 26, the woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please uh, my Lord, give her the living baby. Uh, don't kill him. She was filled with love. Trust me. She wasn't just calculating in her mind what the mechanically correct thing was that she was supposed to do. It was a matter of the affection of her heart. Or think of Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 1. That beautiful poem starts by saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. That's no mere platonic calculation. That's spoken with deep passion, with deep emotion. Love may be more than emotion, but it is certainly not less. Love is emotional. Love is affection. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
Uh, we have this a couple of times in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, one is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, in verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. Do you see how God's love for you is coupled with God's affection for you? Two different words. Uh, the, the one love, the second one is the one that we have in our text. The first one is chashak, affection, to set your affection on someone. That's what, that's what the love is before the love. The love with which God has loved you, it's one where he set his affection on you. And uh, the love that is a response is to be an affectionate response. I have, do you ever wonder why you have some very, very vivid memories and so many things have happened in the past that you can't remember? Well, I have one very vivid memory. Uh, when Adele and I were in college and we were fairly serious in our relationship, um, she asked me at one point why I wanted to marry her. And I'll never forget my answer, and she's never forgotten my answer. My answer was, because I'm committed. Now, guys, that wasn't what she was looking for. <laughs> she didn't want to hear about commitment. You know, she wanted something more affectionate. Well, we've been married now for 38 years. And um, slowly the affectionate side has come out of me. I think at this point she's pretty thankful for the commitment side. You know, it, we've had, like all of you, some huge ups and downs in our marriage with our, the two of us, with immediate family, with extended family. And, uh, but it's got to be more than just commitment. You can be committed to a business partner. Spouses want more than commitment. They, they surely want commitment, don't they? It's better than the alternative. But they want something more than commitment. And God wants our obedience. It certainly is better than the alternative. But God wants more than just your obedience. He wants the affection of your heart. And that's why it says here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love. It's covenantal. It's a response to his love for you. It's volitional. It does bring the right actions with it. Oh, but it is just so wrapped up in a heart that is full of emotion, full of deep affection for God. So when the text says, as the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, it means that you are to respond to the love that he has for you. You're to respond with obedience to his teaching and that obedience is because you are responding to him with a deep affection for him because you understand how affectionate he is toward you now i don't know maybe before this morning you never thought about god being affectionate he is that's what the text says chashak a couple of places in deuteronomy at a minimum that God has set his affection on you. 
I think I understand at least some of this because I have a daughter. To be sure, I'm affectionate with my sons, but not in the same way as with my daughter. She's also the baby. Fourth, only girl. I, I have very deep feelings of affection. And I, being a finite, sinful father, know something about the affection of a father for a child. What kind of affection does the father have for you? How deep the Father's love for us. And because of that deep affection, how can we respond to Him in any other way than by having affection toward Him? One of the ways Annie shows me affection, she's in college now, she still calls me Daddy. Might change sometime. I don't know. I hope I always stay Daddy. Because that's such an affectionate term. And when she calls me Daddy, I can feel the affection coming toward me that is a response to the affection that I have toward her. As we obey, may God always hear us saying, Daddy. Now, the second point is much shorter because I'm not sure what it means. That's only partly true. Second thing is, first point is, love the Lord your God. Uh, Second point, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, there are two possible interpretations of heart, soul, and strength. One interpretation is that there are three things involved. And you'd say, well, that's a no-brainer, right? Heart, soul, strength, three things. Um, If that is the case, there are three things going on. The heart is kind of the CPU of the computer. The heart is the inner person. The heart is inner person. In Deuteronomy, the heart is used for emotions. The heart is used for the will. The heart is used for the thought processes. The heart is that inner, what we can't see, it's that inner control panel. The word soul is often used in the Old Testament for the whole person. Uh, The text will say something like, there was a battle and 50 souls died. Well, it's not saying that 50 souls died while the bodies walked off the battlefield and, you know, went and had a barbecue. When it says 50 souls died, who died? 50, 50 people. The word soul can be used for the whole person. And so the... Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, inner, with all of your soul, the whole person, and with all of your strength, that is, with all of your resources, with everything that you have that's external to you. And this is typically the way the text is interpreted, the inner, the whole, and the outer. I have a little reservation about that, only because as I read the book of Deuteronomy, So frequently, not only in Deuteronomy, but also in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, heart and soul always come together. They're like glued together as one unit. You know that old song, Heart and Soul? Some of you don't know that one, but some of us know that one. Heart and Soul, You Got Me Loving You. Uh, I think I learned how to play that in piano lessons when I was a kid. But at any rate, heart and soul. Uh, they, they go together. They're, they're like a unit. 
uh, we won't take time to look at them, but Deuteronomy 10.12, Deuteronomy 11.13, Deuteronomy 11.18, we could multiply examples. And so because heart and soul so frequently occur together without the word strength, I'm inclined to think that heart and soul don't refer to two different things. They refer to one thing. Heart and soul, it's everything that is inside of you. And then strength is everything that is external to you. So you see, we have two possible interpretations. Inner, heart, whole person, soul, resources, strength. Or we have two things going on. Heart and soul, everything that's inside. Strength, everything that is external. I can't really make up my mind. But the good thing is, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Because whether it's three things or two things, what's the point? Somebody tell me what the point is. Love the Lord your God with what? With absolutely everything. So in a sense, it doesn't matter. Even if we can't figure out for sure whether it's three or two, because both of them make the exact same point. By the way, just as a little sidebar, this is not always, but sometimes, maybe even often the way it is with theological controversy. Sometimes we're in very deep controversy, but when we get down to look underneath, even though there's on the surface a difference underneath, it's making the same big point. So we always have to be careful when we're disagreeing with people to make sure we're getting down underneath because down underneath we might find that we're really on the same page and it's just on the surface that we're on a different page. The point is that God wants us to love him with the totality of our being. And that makes perfect sense, right? I am the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When it says the Lord is one, it's saying the Lord is not divided. He's one. When it says love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, it says you cannot be divided. No divided loyalties. God is one exclusive relationship and and it won't do for you to give God this part of your life, but not that part of your life. Because of who he is, the only response that makes sense is that we give him the whole of our lives. And so notice that emphasis, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Even if we can't figure out exactly what those words refer to, we know what the word all means here, especially when it's repeated three times. God has given you his all. Paul says that he's already given us, Romans chapter 8, his very, very, very best. He has loved you with His all as demonstrated in the perfection of the work of His Son in His life and in His death and in His resurrection and in His ascension and in His second coming. God has loved you with His all. What other response is possible than for us to love Him with our all. Now, for us to do that, we've got to have some divine intervention. 
well, I'm done. And um, I guess I'm going to have to come back some point for that divine intervention because it's like in the next couple of verses. So Lord willing, the elders will be gracious and uh, they'll bring me back because uh, we're just we're continuing this, you know, the divine intervention. How is it that we can how is it that we can actually go about loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul and with all of our strength? Um, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses six, seven, uh, eight, nine, two more sermons. So if the elders are gracious, uh, I'd love to come back sometime and share more. But let's pray together. Father, we bless you for the gift of your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We bless you for the gift of your word incarnate because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We do have within us now the power to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul and with all of our strength. We also realize that we don't always do that. But because Jesus has come for us, we have forgiveness. And we rejoice in that. And out of gratitude for the forgiveness for not loving you, we want to love you more with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Thank you for your covenantal affection that you have shown us. And may we now, out of hearts of affection, respond to your love by keeping your commandments. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.